0: So take your Bible and turn to the Revelation. Uh, it's the last book, and we're going to um, spend quite a long journey together walking through this. I'm so glad uh, that, that you've all come out to um, study together as we walk through this. Um, we're going to spend tonight uh, looking mainly over an introduction, and then we'll sp- look at th- the first three verses of chapter 1. Uh, as we go and um, receive a challenge from the Word, but mostly we want to set the stage uh, for our journey through the book. And so I've given you a handout. I hope everybody got a copy, um, and the handout will be helpful to you uh, as we walk through this. I'll walk straight through this, and you can fill some things in. I've, I've given you some of the things. I haven't given you everything, so you can fill it in accordingly accordingly. Um, And at the at the end of all this, if you want my notes, I'll be glad to give them to you. But I'm not going to give them to you just yet. Um, So, as we start off, I've given you a list of resources. uh, Because every now and then people say, "Well, what you know, what commentary could we read? What resources are out there?" And so I've given you a list of of the resources that I'm using. Uh, Not all of these resources look at the revelation from the same view and we'll talk about that, uh, what those different views are in a moment. Uh, But I like to read broadly and so this is a broad spectrum on the book but from particularly uh, more conservative scholars. There's a few that are centrist but mostly very conservative scholars. Uh, on the work. The two best, if you had to pick one or two uh, that you would look at, the first uh, is by my favorite theologian. Someone asked me yesterday, so who's your favorite? Uh, my favorite theologian is George Eldon Ladd. George Eldon Ladd. Uh, this is his a commentary on the Revelation of John. Uh, it's very helpful. Um, it's helpful for two reasons. Number one, this is the more important of the two. Uh, the first reason it's helpful is because it's written at a lay level. Um, So you you don't have to be a Greek scholar to be able to access what's in this book um, and really be benefited from it. And then the other thing is that he takes this from the viewpoint that I'm going to teach from, um, and that'll be helpful in understanding how this system um, goes through. So I I bolded him at the very top of the resource list. Um, George Eldon Ladd is popular for having uh, put forward the idea of an inaugurated kingdom, the idea that that God's kingdom has it is something that we're waiting on, but it's also something that has come in Jesus Christ. Uh, so when you hear me talk about uh, the already, the not yet, the kingdom that's come, the kingdom that's coming, uh, that we live in a space between uh, God's rule and reign having begun in the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's also something we're waiting on. All of that really goes back to George Eldon Ladd, and it's something that he uh, really popularized from the Word, and so um, just has been immensely beneficial to my life, and I, I think he would be to you as well. He's got a lot of other books um, on theology, and also he's written a Theology of the New Testament that's very helpful, um, but George Eldon Ladd. This is my new favorite. Uh, this is brand new. I got it this week, and um, I'm just going to commend it to you. If you are a Sunday school teacher, if you uh, have ever taught a grow group, if you're just a good student of the Bible and you want a basic commentary to look at um, that kind of covers a broad spectrum, Crossway, that publishes the English Standard Version that that I preach from, um, Crossway has published these uh, commentaries on the whole Bible. It's a 12-volume set. Um, not all 12 volumes have been written yet. They're waiting on the first volume on Genesis. Uh, you'd think they would start at the beginning and go forward, but they didn't. Um, so uh, they're waiting on the first volume, and I think there's one other one in this Old Testament series that's yet to be done. Um, but Crossway has published these. This is the commentary on Hebrews to Revelation. Uh, the introduction to this book, to the introduction to the Revelation— it's worth the price of this book. If you didn't get anything else from it, uh, even the verse-by-verse commentary, I read the introduction today, and it's tremendous. Um, very accessible. Very something anybody could could read and, and benefit from. Um, these commentaries, if you order them through Crossway, uh, and I'm not I'm not get a kickback here. I'm just telling you because you know when one person finds bread, he wants to tell somebody else where to find it. So Crossway, if you sign up for their Crossway Plus membership, which is free, you just put your email in and sign up for it, uh, you get a 30% discount automatically. And it makes it cheaper than you can find it almost anywhere else. Um, so ESV commentary series uh, through Crossway is, is worth gold. And if you just did it one at a time, I think this Revelation commentary, uh, well, Hebrews to Revelation, I think it was $40, maybe a little less, um, but, but worth it. So that's enough about that. Let's talk about the author. Um, you have some points there, and you go, well, you didn't tell us who the author is. Well, I'm going to tell you as we walk through this. And I'm going to do a fair amount of reading. I don't do that on Sunday morning. I just preach, uh, but this is teaching, and it's a little different. So I'm going to do some reading as we walk through this, um, but, but we'll, we'll get through it together. Uh, when we look at the authorship, the first thing that we have to admit is that we don't have a clear conclusion Uh, as to who the author is. We don't have uh, specific things to know who this author is other than what he tells us. And what he tells us is that he is John, a bondservant of Jesus, a partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom with his brothers in the faith, and that he was exiled on the island of Patmos for the sake of his identification with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we don't know exactly who this John is, there are a lot of different suggestions that have been made Um, Scholars have posited a variety of persons, including an elder in the church at Ephesus named John, a member of the Jehannine prophetic school, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, John Mark, who is the author of the second gospel, John the Baptist, and even an unknown author who chose the apostle as his pseudonym. When we think about these different options that are out there, the strongest case for the author uh, is John the Apostle. And so this is be the disciple whom Jesus loved. In spite of the variations in grammar and vocabulary and theological focus, which are usually the things that people would would offer up as reasons that this is not John the Apostle writing, um, the clear clear, uh, conclusion is that this must be John the Apostle. And there are three basic reasons for this, and you see them here uh, outlined. The first is that he identifies himself as an elder, but not as an apostle. Uh, When the books of the New Testament were written, usually uh, the standard for admitting a book into the canon, and the canon is the official listing of the the books that are received as authoritative for the church, the official... uh, acceptability for something coming into the canon uh, was, was it written by an apostle of the Lord Jesus? Um, Not every book in the New Testament was written by an apostle. Uh, Some of these books were not. uh, We think about the gospel of Mark. It's not written by an apostle. However, it was an um, apostolic witness that Mark was uh, bearing. He was a disciple of the apostle Peter, and so he's telling Peter's story. When we look at other books in the New Testament, usually there is some apostle That is attributed uh, to the to be the author of those books. Some of you will have studied the letter to the Hebrews, and you'll know that there is no official uh, author. He doesn't give us his name, and so um, that's a cause for a lot of concern among some people. Uh, The early church fathers they believed it was the apostle Paul, and that's one of the reasons they accepted it into the canon of scripture. So when we look at the Revelation, and we see that he doesn't call himself an apostle. We might say, well, then it's not the apostle except... If he were an apostle who was well-known, who was very popular, who was uh, widely accepted to have walked with the Lord Jesus, he would not have had to speak to it. He would have just been accepted. That That's that's John the Apostle. We all know him, right? Uh, If you said Nicholas from Elkdale, well, at this point, you all would basically know who Nicholas from Elkdale is. And so uh, it's like that with John. He's John the Elder. Well, we know that John the Elder was also John the Apostle. The second reason that we would say this is John the Apostle is uh, because it was the commonly held view in the early church. Um, the earliest church fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, they all accepted that this was written by John the Apostle. And so that, it's not authoritative in itself, but it's, it's something that should indicate to us, take this seriously, it's probably John the Apostle. And then the third reason is the testimony of Papias. Uh, some of you will have looked at Eusebius' history uh, in the 3rd century, and when Eusebius talks about the revelation, he uh, references Papias, and he says that Papias says uh, that it was written by John the Elder, not John the Apostle. But but Eusebius mistranslates Papias' writing, and if we go back and look at a more faithful translation of Papias' writing, we see that Papias equates all of the apostles and calls them elders. He says that, that they were elders in the church, and so he wasn't denying the apostleship of John. He was just uh, using a different terminology, elder, uh, as, in terms of leadership in the local church to refer to John. And so all these things seem to say this is John the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, who's writing this revelation, who's received it and is transmitting it to the churches. Wednesday writing, Uh, one of the things that uh, really fascinates me... is the canon of Scripture. When when did we receive this official list of, uh, of the books of Scripture? And a lot of times, kind of, if we've never looked at it, if we've just heard about the canon of Scripture, uh, we may think that a church council in the 3rd or 4th century decided which books were going to be admitted into the Bible. Um, and if you've ever watched some uh, History Channel special on it, that's probably what you've heard. But the reality is that Uh, There never has been a church council, an ecumenical council of the church, where all of the books were approved as being canonical. And so the books themselves, they actually testify to their own legitimacy, to having been inspired by the Holy Spirit and been received among the community of believers as authoritative uh, in the life of the church. And one of the things that often gets put out there about the books of Scripture is that they were really late written, that they, they came in the 2nd century and even into the latter part of the 2nd century. But I think studying the Revelation and talking about when this book was written is really good for us to make this point. When we look at the dating of the Revelation, we are looking at the latest book. It's not only the last book, it is the latest written book in the New Testament. Uh, before this would have been the uh, the Epistles of John and the Gospel of John, probably written uh, in the 80s. But this is written somewhere in the mid-90s uh, A.D. It's the last book written that becomes a part of the New Testament canon. And here's what's really uh, important about that. When we think about the writing of the Revelation and it coming in the 90s, Here's what we can say, that somebody who was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus' ministry could have lived long enough to read the entire Bible. Now, was everything codified in one particular book at that point? It was not. These these original autographs, the, the original manuscripts of the New Testament, they were circulated and copied and transmitted individually, and then, and then the, the Gospels were bound together, and the Epistles were bound together, and then eventually they were all bound together into what we know as the New Testament. But it is entirely possible that someone who was an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry could have lived long enough to receive and read the entirety of the New Testament. And so that really should bust away this idea that these things came very late uh, in the history of the church, that they came from men. God God was at work giving this word and superintending it by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit so that it came to the church quickly. When we think about the different options for the dating, uh, I'm going to lean toward the late date, but there is an option for an earlier date One option is in the mid-60s, during or just after the persecution of Nero. Uh, Nero reigned as emperor in Rome from 54 to 68 AD, and prior to the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, the persecution under Nero was not widespread, occurring only in the Italian province. There's no evidence for official persecution in Asia Minor during this period, Additionally, the argument for a date prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD centers on a particular interpretation of Revelation chapter 11, whether the temple described there was the Herodian or second temple, which is the preterist view, we'll talk about that in a minute, or is a future third temple, either symbolic or literal, which we would see in the futurist view. The second more likely date is somewhere in the mid-90s AD, And here's why. It's during the mid-90s that we have the reign of Domitian. He reigns from 81 to 96 AD as emperor in Rome. And during Domitian's reign, there is increased persecution, and that persecution is more widespread than just the province of Italy itself. If we think about this later date, it allows for the development of an imperial cult, And the imperial cult is the religion of the the worship of the emperor himself. They saw the emperor as being godlike, and so they they demanded abeyance to him. And so here are three just quick reasons why we would say the later view, the later date, is more likely. The first is this Irenaeus. Irenaeus is writing um, in the 2nd century. Irenaeus was a hearer of Polycarp's preaching. And Polycarp is a a disciple of John the Apostle. And Polycarp, according to Irenaeus, said that the letter, the revelation was written in the latter part of Domitian's reign second reason is that earlier in the history of the Roman Empire, uh, this religious cult worship around the emperor was not as pronounced. And so uh, for that to have developed and for it to be a requirement and for it to be such uh, a pronounced part of society that if you denied the worship of the emperor, you would have been cut out of your trade guilds, you would have been cut out of the marketplace, Um, that would have taken time. And so a later date is more likely... And then the third reason is that uh, we have a, an instruction, a letter that goes to the church at Laodicea, and that letter talks about the wealth and the riches of the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was struck by an earthquake in 60 to 61 AD, and that caused the city to decline for a period. It would not have had time to recover and be a strong center of wealth by the mid, middle part of the 60s AD, and so a later date is more likely in view. Next thing we want to think about is the style, the genre. What kind of, what kind of writing is this? Um, if you've never thought about the style of the writing, uh, you, may, you may think, well, the Bible's a book and it's all the same and we just pick it up and read it. Uh, that's good. You ought to read it. Uh, we want to be good students of the Bible. It, it helps us in our walk with Christ. But if we want to take the next step into really understanding this book It's good for us to think about the genre that we're reading. Uh, We don't read the law the same way that we read the poetic literature, and we don't read the poetic literature the same way we read the historical literature, and we don't read the historical literature the same way we read the Gospels, and we don't read the Gospels the same way we read the epistles. There are different things that have to be brought into view uh, because of the nature of the writing itself. That's not to say that we're denying the truthfulness of it. It's not to say that we're trying to explain something away. It is to say that we we want to receive it the way it was intended to be received. And the Holy Spirit of God used earthly means in order to transmit the word of the Lord. And so these literary styles actually matter when it comes to the matters of interpretation. There are three issues at work, three styles at work uh, in the revelation. The first is apocalyptic. Uh, the word revelation itself means, uh, it, it is the word apocalypsis. And so uh, we have our word apocalypse. That's what this word is. The revelation is first and foremost apocalyptic in nature. The very first word in the book is apocalypsis. It's translated revelation. Apop- apocalyptic literature is an extension of, an extension of the Old Testament prophetic literature. Though there are canonical glimpses of it in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, it owes its main source to the intertestamental period, um, the time between the last canonical writing in the Old Testament, which is Malachi, to the time of the first New Testament canonical writing, which is Matthew, uh, somewhere of about 400 years, uh, from about 400 to about 6 B.C., Uh, is what that time period is between the end of the prophetic writing and the beginning of the ministry of Christ. When there were no writing prophets for the people of God in this period, God's people longed for a word from the Lord, and they, they longed for God to restore the life of his people. And yet they were without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they put forward a desire to point God's people forward with hope And so they wrote visionary accounts filled with strange and dreadful symbols in order to proclaim the danger of the present age and offer hope in the age to come when God will rightly order all things. In this way, apocalyptic is a literary genre and a worldview. It's a way of looking at things. The second style that's in view in the Revelation is prophetic. The author is clear that he is a part of the local church Particularly, we would say, I think, the church at Ephesus if we are to believe the history of of the church, the tradition of the church, that John was an elder in Ephesus. He's a part of the local church, and that local church is experiencing difficulty and tribulation on account of her faith. In addition to being a fellow bondservant of Jesus Christ, John is also a prophet. He says this in chapter 22 and verse 9. He's a prophet whom God has given to the church and through through whom God offers a prophecy for the church. The aim of this prophecy is to proclaim in advance the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the conquering Lamb, as well as to teach the church how to live in the intervening years. Revelation is apocalyptic, it's prophetic, it's also epistolary. From chapter 1 and verse 4, we see that the book has a specific audience, namely the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. The greeting John sends, the clear message for each of these churches in verse 4, the instruction to read this work aloud in the congregation, verse 3 of chapter 1, the benediction of grace in chapter 22 and verse 21, for believers point to the nature of the revelation being a letter, an epistle. Revelation is a circular letter, which is to say that it would have been delivered to the congregation at Ephesus, read aloud, copied, and then the original sent on with the pattern repeated for each church listed, and likely for other churches in the region. There are other churches in the New Testament, or other letters in the New Testament, uh, that are like this. We may think of this um, in the letters uh, to the church at Colossae, that is an example The nature of the revelation as a letter helps ground the work in a specific time and place and reminds the reader, whatever his generation, to ask prior to his work of interpretation, how would these words have been received by the first hearers? So I'm going to stop my notes for a minute. I'm going to offer something that I think is really important, and we will remind ourselves of this going forward. As we look to interpret the revelation One of the principles that we're going to use is this, that it cannot mean what it could never mean. It cannot mean now what it could not have meant then. When we think about the actual authorial intended meaning, uh, one of the tenets of of biblical interpretation uh, is that we restrict ourselves to the intent of the author. Now, the application may come in a variety of ways, and we may find application that is specific to our own context, that has instruction for us how to live in the 21st century. It has specific application to the issues that we deal with in our, uh, in our setting here in the city of Selma, in Dallas County, in, in the United States. But the meaning itself, it is it is prescribed to a particular people and so it's restricted to what that authorial intent was and we use the nature of hermeneutics which is biblical interpretation uh, we use the original languages we use our knowledge of the culture and we use the text itself to try to understand what the author's intended meaning is. When we think about the purpose of the letter, that's the next thing on your guide. When we think about the purpose of this revelation, one of the things that we want to understand is that the author intends to preach about God and to show that the purpose is drawn from the redemptive plan of God himself. God the Father has given a revelation to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has communicated this message to his servant John through means of an angelic messenger for the purpose of conveying the message to the churches of Asia Minor. God the Father desires that his church should overcome the present tribulation it is experiencing and any future tribulation it will experience. Therefore, he writes to warn them of the tribulation that they will face, to explain the judgment that the wicked will suffer, to proclaim the blessing that the righteous will enjoy, and to urge the faithful in all generations to be found righteous in the end through allegiance to the Lamb who has already overcome. You have on your outline uh, two triangles, Um, And I'm going to, if you've got a pen, it'll be helpful to fill this in. Uh, These two triangles represent two particular orders. Um, These come from Dr. Robert Mulholland, who's a New Testament professor at Asbury Seminary. He says that all human beings will live in one of these two orders there's an order that is uh, the order of rebellion, and then there's an order that is the order of redemption. All human beings will live in one of these orders of being, and the purpose of the revelation is to urge the readers and hearers to live in the order of the redeemed. By presenting the reality of these two orders and the ultimate doom of the rebellious order, God the Father, through John, is urging His church to remain faithful to the Lamb by holding fast to their confession of faith and persevering no matter how intense the persecution gets, resting in the assurance that the Lamb has overcome. And so let me just walk through these two particular orders that are being set up in the Revelation. And we're going to work from the bottom of the pyramid to the top, the bottom of the triangle to the top. And if you wanted to, you could divide these into four sections, and that'll be helpful. So first, I want you to think about the rebellious order, the ones on the right. And the bottom section of the rebellious order is hell. And the next section above that would be Satan. I'm going to go go through these again. And above Satan would be the beast or the false prophet. And above that would be fallen Babylon. So in the rebellious order, at the very base, there is hell. And above hell is Satan. And above Satan is the beast or false prophet. And above the beast and false prophet, there is fallen Babylon. Babylon. Hell is the foundation of this rebellious order's reality. It is the place where Satan dwells. It is his abode. Satan, the second part of this order, is the ruler of this realm, but he only rules by the authority of God the Father. The beast or false prophet are the incarnation of Satan's rebellion in human history. And fallen Babylon are those people who worship the beast and its image, receive his mark, and are ultimately condemned with him. But there's another order, and it's the order of the redeemed. The base of this order is heaven itself. And above heaven is God, and above God is the Lamb, And above the Lamb, in this order, is the new Jerusalem. So the base is God, or the base is heaven, and above heaven is God, and above God is the Lamb, and above the Lamb is the new Jerusalem. The Revelation outlines that in this redeemed order, heaven is the foundation of this reality. It's the abode and the realm of God. It's the place that God dwells. And that God is the ruler of this realm. And the Lamb is Jesus Christ. He is the incarnation of God's presence into human history. And the New Jerusalem are the people who follow the Lamb. And what God desires is that we should learn, learn the condemnation that will come to the rebellious order, to learn that every one of us is tied up in that order if we are not, if we are not brought into the order of the redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, and to know that if we have been brought into the order of the redeemed, then there is security and there is steadfast love and there is the safety of a home in the presence of God and the Lamb forever. You see the structure of the book. We're going to look this week and next at the epilogue and maybe next week just into the first portion of the first vision there are four, four visions outlined you see there, and then we will come to the very end, many weeks from now, to the epilogue. There are other ways to look at the structure of the book. This one is offered uh, by Dr. George Eldon Ladd, and uh, I believe it's, it's a good basic synopsis. When we think about the Revelation and how we look at this, we have to make some determinations first of the way that we'll approach this book. Um, some of you have come here, we've got a lot of folks here tonight, some of you will have come knowing exactly how you look at the Revelation. Um, others of you maybe have studied this before, but haven't settled on a particular understanding or maybe didn't even really recognize that there were particular ways of approaching the book. And still others of us, we, uh, we're not sure, we, we have not, uh, we've not really given a lot of careful thought In order for us to go together in this thing, in this pursuit, uh, because this is a worthwhile endeavor to study this book, it's a book that promises blessing. In order for us to pursue this together, we're going to come at it from one particular view. And if you have questions, then I'll refer you. um, There's a a resource on your resource guide. It's there. In the middle of the list, it's the Revelation 4 Views, a parallel commentary uh, by Steve Gregg. That would be helpful to you if you know, I'm in this camp, but that's not the way pastor's teaching this. What about my questions that have to do with it from this point of view? That particular resource would be helpful to you uh, to kind of compare the different ways that, that these views track through the book. The first thing that we have to determine is how are we going to deal with the issue of the millennium? This is the biggest issue. How will we deal with the issue of the millennium? Uh, There are two choices to be made. The first is how we deal uh, with the rapture and second coming of Christ in relation to the millennium. And the second is how do we deal with the historicity of the events that are described in this book. First, we want to think about how do we approach the rapture and second coming in relation to the millennium. And there are four main options. The first is the classical or historical premillennialist view, classical or historical premillennialism. And some of you hear this, you hear that word premillennialism, and you say, that's me, that's the camp I'm in. Maybe, but I'm going to say probably most of you are actually in the next category, Uh, which is a different type of premillennialism. We'll look at it in a moment. But the classical or historical premillennialist view uh, is the most constant in the history of the church. For the first 1,700 years of the church's history, and when we say church, we don't mean Elkdale. We mean the Big C Church, all the church, all God's people at all times and places. For the first 1,700 years of the church's history, this was basically the only accepted view of the millennium. Uh, there, there was some nod toward uh, a sort another view, uh, what we see in post-millennialism, um, but basically everybody holds for 1,700 years to a premillennial view, a classic premillennial view. Classical or historical premillennialism understands that the rapture of the church and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are simultaneous events that occur after the final period of intense or great tribulation, which will signal the consummation of human history, but before the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth with his church. So classical or historical premillennialism says that the rapture of the church, us being caught up with the Lord, and the second coming of Christ, his descent to reign upon the earth, are simultaneous events. They happen on the back of each other, back to back. And that they happen after a period of intense or great tribulation, but before the millennial reign of Christ upon the earth. Dispensational premillennialism is a horse of a different color, as you might imagine. This is a very popular view now. In fact, um, I had a theory that uh, for a long time about how this view became so popular, and then I had it confirmed uh, by one of my my seminary professors. Dispensational premillennialism largely became the accepted view in the Deep South because of one thing. Does anybody want to take a guess why this became so accepted? Anybody ever have a Schofield reference Bible? Okay. Some of you? Yep. The Schofield Reference Bible was one of the first reference Bibles uh, that, was, that was available commonly. And the Schofield Reference Bible came with notes. And the notes in the Schofield Reference Bible uh, took a dispensational premillennial view. And when you're a layperson and you have limited theological resources and you get that reference Bible and you read those notes, you just tend to kind of accept, well, this is the way that things are. Uh, dispensational premillennialism was really made popular uh, through the influence of Dallas Theological Seminary. It really came about uh, in the 1800s. This view understands that the rapture of the church occurs prior, before, that's the pre part, prior to a literal seven-year period of that they call the Great Tribulation after which Christ will return. That's his second coming. He'll return with his church to establish his millennial reign. Um, so classical premillennialism says that we have the catching up, the rapture of the church, and the second coming, the descent of Christ with his church, and the beginning of a millennial reign, after all of that, after a period of intense tribulation, great tribulation. Premillennialism in the dispensational view, says we have a catching up, the rapture of the church into the presence of God, that the earth, those who are left here, go through a great tribulation. And after that, there is the descent of Christ with his church and the establishment of a millennial reign. And after that, there are, uh, there are the destruction of the wicked and the battle of Armageddon and so forth. Two different things. There's a third view. It's called postmillennialism. Post millennialism argues for a very different view of human history. If you're in the premillennial camp, either classic or, or dispensational, if you're in the premillennial camp, then you understand that the world is wicked. The world is increasingly wicked. And that the world is going to come under the destruction for that wickedness, that God's wrath is going to be poured out upon those who have rebelled against Him. And that that wickedness, as we look at the prophetic words of the New Testament, that that wickedness seems to only increase until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But postmillennialism seems to deny that. It's a different view altogether. It's a view of human history that says Christians will not face increasing tribulation, but rather they will become popular. They will be the norm in human history. That the longer history goes on, the more Christians there will be and the more influence they will have and the more, the more they will cause peace and prosperity to reign over the earth. And as a result of this adoption of Christianity by much of the world's population, there will be a long period, a, a millennium, of peace and prosperity when righteousness flourishes. And after this, Christ will return to judge the world and usher in the new heaven and new earth that's a very modern view as well. There's one final view. It's called the amillennialist view. It's the only other historic view. Amillennialism, it takes a non-literal view of Revelation 21 through 6 and when we say it's a historic view, it, it was it was held by some in the early church though, though not widely held. Amillennialism argues that Satan's binding in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, is not an end-time reality, but God's current restraint of him in the present age. Consequently, when this age comes to its end, Satan will be loosed, the last judgment will occur, and God will reign with his people in the new heaven and new earth. Four options, and we've got to pick one. And as you can imagine, we're going to pick the pastors. Um, So we are going to approach this from the classic or historical premillennialist view. Like I said, if that is different from where you've been, you're going to have questions. um, And you may have disagreements. And it's okay, okay? The first thing I want to tell you from the beginning is that this book, it carries blessing. It should not become something that divides us. It should unite us in our confidence in the Lord Jesus who has overcome all of our sin for us. And so if you have questions, ask, but don't ask here because it'll only cause confusion. And if you have questions, pick up that Four Parallel View book. It will help you tremendously. But we'll work through things together. When I grew up, I'm just going to tell you this real quick. When I grew up, um, I grew up, like a lot of other kids in my era, the, the left-behind books were very popular. Uh, when I was in middle school, they were, they were really coming into view. And um, those books are written from a dispensational premillennial view. Uh, some of you may be familiar with John Hagee or Tim LaHaye um, or maybe even Dr. David Jeremiah. All of those folks will teach from a dispensational view. Growing up, the one argument that seemed to hold out in favor in our household for dispensational premillennialism, though we would not have known that that's what it was called. I don't want you to think we were deeply theological because we weren't. Um, But the one thing that was held forth in our home as being a reason to take that view was this idea that God would not allow his church to suffer the intensity of the Great Tribulation. All of that argument began to fall apart in my mind as I read the book, the Bible. Because what I see in the Bible is that it is supposed to be commonplace, and in fact it is commonplace in the lives of those who belong to God by faith, that we suffer, that we endure hardship and persecution and trouble. And I realized in studying the history of the church from its earliest days, even into modern times, that actually God's people have suffered all sorts of trouble all sorts of difficulty and hardship and i came away convinced that the great tribulation is not different it's not different in the quality but in the quantity of persecution that comes to the church the kind of Persecution, suffering, hardship, difficulty, trouble that comes to the church in this period of intense tribulation at the end of this present earthly age is not different in quality. Men and women are have always suffered on account of the faith in Jesus Christ. There have always been men and women who were crucified. There have always been men and women who were beheaded. There have always been men and women who were thrown to the to the animals in the, in the, in the Colosseum. There have always been men and women who were burned at the stake, there have always been men and women who were jailed on account of their faith in Jesus. So the difference at the end of the age is not a difference of quality, it's a difference in quantity. It's no more immense, it's not any greater in terms of the, the kind of persecution, it's just more intense. There's a whole lot more of it as time goes on. And so as that began to crumble and I became aware of the fact that there actually were other ways to approach this book, I took a serious look at classical historical premillennialism and came away uh, convinced that, that this is the view. You gotta search that for yourself, and I'm gonna give you the opportunity to know maybe another viewpoint and to give it some consideration. The other decision that we have to make in terms of how do we approach this book is what are we going to do with the events that happen in the Revelation? How will we view their, historic, their historicity, the, the historical nature of these books? And there are four ways that we could approach this. The first is uh, preterism. The Preterist view understands that the events described in the Revelation have occurred in the years leading up to and including 70 AD when the temple, the second temple, the Herodian temple, was destroyed. Those who take this view exclusively tend to argue for an early date of the Revelation, mid-60s AD. The second view is historicism. The historic view understands that the events described in the Revelation were progressively fulfilled throughout the history of the church with only the most intense events described as remaining in the future. So this view would say that most of what happens in this book has already occurred and that only a few things are left to happen in the future. Then there's idealism. Idealism understands the events described in the Revelation as symbolic of the timeless struggle between good and evil throughout the church age. And so rather than seeing these as actual, physical, earthly, historical events, the idealist would say, really this is an allegory. This is a symbolic thing. Certainly there's symbolism to be found in the Revelation. It's all over. It's the nature of the language. But this view says everything is symbolic, or almost everything. Then there's futurism. While recognizing that some, if not many, of the events in the Revelation occurred in the first century, futurism understands that the events described in the Revelation, particularly from chapters 6 through 19, are future events from the author's perspective and in large part from ours as well. So where do we land? For the purpose of our study, we'll approach the Revelation from a classic historical premillennialist view and from a futurist view. Classical, pre- historical premillennialism is the dominant view in throughout the church history, throughout the history of the church. It seems to make the best sense in light of the scriptural evidence. This view presents eschatology, that's end times. We're going to use that word a lot. Eschatology is end times, the study of the end times. It presents eschatological events as follows, that the present or church age where we live will witness the degeneration of society, culminating in an age or seven years of intense tribulation that will be visited upon the whole world, including the church. At the end of this time, the church will be caught up in the clouds with Christ, what we call the rapture, only to immediately descend with Christ, the second coming, who will then establish his peaceful, powerful reign upon the earth for a long period, the millennium, a thousand years. And after this millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be loosed from the abyss, and the armies of the earth will gather for a great battle against the Lamb and his army. Only the battle will not be great, because in an instant it will be over, as heavenly fire rains down, consuming them, including the devil who had deceived them, who will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. And following the condemnation of the devil, Christ will judge the peoples of the earth according to what they have done, condemning those whose names are not found in the book of life to eternal torment in the lake of fire. The first heaven and first earth will pass away, and a new heaven and new earth will appear, joining as one in the new Jerusalem, the final and full dwelling place of God and his people. Eschatology is the study of last things. The words derived from the Greek word eschatos, which means last, The Revelation is certainly the largest section of Scripture dealing with those things pertaining to the eschaton. When we think about eschatology, we're thinking of the study of last things. And when we talk about the eschaton, we're talking about the last day or the day of the Lord when the consummation of human history occurs. But it's not the only book that deals with these things. So when we think about the Revelation, we have to think of other books that consider eschatology the events described in the Revelation has to work in line with these, whether it's Daniel or Matthew or First Thessalonians. Eschatology should not simply be an academic study of last things, which is to say that we don't simply want to know about these things. We want them to change how we live. Dr. N.T. Wright says in his book, Surprised by Hope, That the word eschatology, which literally means the study of last things, doesn't just refer to death, judgment, heaven, and hell as used to be thought and as many dictionaries still define the word. It also refers to the strongly held beliefs of most first century Jews and virtually all early Christians that history was going somewhere under the guidance of God and that where it was going was towards God's new world of justice, healing, and hope. Eschatology, the study of last things, allows us to make sense out of an otherwise senseless existence. It bids us to understand what this life is truly all about and pushes us deeper into our own situation to work diligently for the transformation of the world. What's the main theme? Uh, You'll note at the top of your study that I've called this The Lamb Has Overcome, a study of the Revelation When we look at a book of Scripture, certainly it's not the only way to approach it, but one of the things that is helpful for us to give a broad understanding to any book of Scripture is to find a theme and chase it through the book. Every book of Scripture has particular themes that occur over and again. We're studying the book of Mark on Sunday mornings, and we've chased the theme of the kingdom of God because it comes up so often in Mark's gospel. When we look at the Revelation, we're going to think about the Lamb who has overcome. We'll do that because it's referred to at least 29 times in the Revelation. The Lamb is clearly the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout our study of the Revelation, we'll see this theme develop. we will note that there are three ways that the Lamb is depicted. The first that would have been really common, all of these would have been very common to John's readers, the first of these is the idea of the sacrificial lamb offered in the temple for the sins of the people. The second is the idea of the paschal lamb who was eaten at the Passover, whose blood was given for the salvation of sinners. But the most prominent reference from the perspective of the initial readers and hearers of this apocalypse is the warrior lamb. The warrior lamb was a feature common to the literary genre that came about in the time between the Old and New Testaments. Almost certainly, this victorious, conquering lamb would have been the first thought for the churches of Asia Minor receiving the revelation. As we see this theme developed, we will be able to say boldly with our Moravian brothers, visit agnus noster eum Secorum, Our lamb has conquered let us follow him. look at revelation one through one chapter chapter one, verses one through three and i I want us to walk through this in just our last few minutes together. John says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the, this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I want you to see, and have given you these uh, listed before you, the five qualities of the revelation that we see in verses 1 and 2. The first thing that we want to note is the substance of the revelation. The substance of the revelation. John says in the first verse, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The substance of the revelation is Jesus himself. It's what this book is all about. This book is predominantly and firstly, in in terms of priority, it is about Jesus. John wants us to know about Jesus. The Father wants us to know about Jesus I want you to know about Jesus. When you think of your endurance and your perseverance, when you think about your ability to withstand difficulty and hardship on account of the faith, when you come to dark times and difficult days, when you suffer on account of your faith, when you suffer difficulty in this world because we live in a world that is marred by sin, I want you to look to Jesus. I want you to remember that Jesus is the source of hope, that Jesus is the one who causes us to conquer, that because Jesus Christ is the Lamb who has overcome, we can trust in him and overcome as well. John tells us not only the substance, he also tells us the source of the revelation. He says in verse 1 that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. John wants you to know that the source is God the Father. It's God the Father who exalts His Son. It's God the Father who communicates the message of His Son. It's God the Father who wants you to be drawn to His Son. God the Father has shown His own character, person, His own divine nature. His very imprint and image are seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the imprint of the invisible God. And because of that, the Father wants to tell the story of the Son. The substance is Jesus, and the source is the Father. And then John points us to the significance of the revelation. He says in verse 1 that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. God the Father gives this revelation to the Son, And the Son discloses it. He makes it evident and He reveals it. He reveals it to His servants. You notice there that it's plural. That this isn't a revelation for one person. It's not for just a particular group of people. It's for all those who are the servants of God and the Lamb. It's for all those who've been washed in His blood. It's for all those that conquer on account of the Lamb and their testimony of Him. It's all those who are numbered in the 144,000 and in the number that is so great that it can't even be counted. The servants of God and the Lamb are those who receive this Word and keep it by faith. God gives this Word about His Son to His servants. When you read the Revelation, it's very important. It's very important. That you don't take this book and hide in a corner and think, I know the answers and nobody else does. It's very important that you don't just read this book to have some sort of secret, mystical understanding of its meaning as though you are in a unique and cliquish club. Sometimes people do that. Sometimes people approach this book as though you have to be of a certain ilk, a certain standing, a certain spirituality to have knowledge of how to interpret this book. And that could not be further from the case. The desire of Holy God, who tells this story about His Son, Jesus Christ, is not to confuse, but to clarify. And it's not to muddy the waters, it's to illuminate the message of His Son. And He gives it to all of His servants who need to know what will soon take place. You notice that He says... He's telling the things that must soon take place. And sometimes we look back at the history of the church and we say, well, it's been 2,000 years. How can it still be soon? It's soon because we know that it's certain. It's soon because we have the assurance that it will happen. We may not know the day or hour. We may not know when human history will come to its final end, but we know that it will come to its final end, and it will do so in the coming of the Son of God, who is the Lamb. Mary and I are soon expecting a child. Jack will make his arrival in five weeks or so. We have a little confidence in that because the doctors these days say, we won't let you go past a certain date. But we don't know exactly when. We don't know the day or the hour. I promise you it will not be my choice that he comes in the middle of the night. (laughs) But we know he's coming. And in similar and even greater vein, we know that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come. These things will soon take place. And we have every bit as much assurance that they will take place as the earliest followers of Jesus did. He wants us to know the sending of the revelation. He says it's by His angel. He says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending His angel, His messenger. John has a vision. We'll read about that next week. But God dispatches His messenger, His angel, to tell about His Son to His servants. And then there's the seer of the revelation. Who, who encounters this? Who gets this vision? It's John. He says, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John, the beloved of Jesus, the one who was his, his best friend, John receives this word and from the heart of a pastor he transmits it so that every follower of Jesus would have assurance of the hope that is to be found in him. Seven times in the Revelation we hear words of blessing. In chapter 1 in verse 3, in chapter 14 in verse 13, in chapter 16 in verse 15, in chapter 19 in verse 9, in chapter 20 in verse 6, in chapter 22 in verse 7, in chapter 22 in verse 14. Chapter 1 in verse 3 is the first blessing. He says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. The word blessing is the Greek word makarios. And the word, it means to be happy, to, to flourish, to, to abound, to be fruitful, to be all the things that God wants you to be. When John talks about blessing that comes from this book, he's not talking about the blessing of, of material goods and he's not ta- talking about the blessing of financial wealth and he's not talking about the blessing of, of emotional relationships. He's, he's not talking about the things that make you happy and healthy and wise. John is talking about the things that come from the deep life of God inside of you. He's talking about the fulfillment of the will and purposes of God in your life. John says if you keep this book and if you read it aloud, you experience the life that God has for you. This blessing, it comes to those who read and it comes to those who heed. So I want to encourage you to do two things. This week, before we gather again, I want to encourage you to sit down by yourself or with your family and read this book aloud. Read the whole thing. Read it carefully. Read it directly. Read it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask for the illumination that only the Spirit can give. But read it out loud. You say, I, I'm not good at reading out loud. You don't have to do it in front of a lot of people. Just you and the Lord. But read it out loud. Because He says, Blessing comes to those who read aloud the words of this prophecy and then obey what you hear. He says, blessed are not only those who read aloud this book, but those who hear it and keep it. There are instructions for us in this book. Instructions for how we should live and instructions for how we should die. And at many points in this book, We will be forced to look in the face of a holy God who is absolutely intent on condemning all of those who are opposed to Him. And a call will come from the Holy Spirit of God that we should not be numbered among the wicked, but that we should be held in the company of the righteous. And if that is to happen, it will be because we obey the words of this book, and overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Father, as we walk away tonight, we pray. We pray for endurance in this study. We pray for wisdom to understand, and we pray for encouragement. Like the writing of the Apostle Paul to the churches at Thessalonica, we pray that these words would be used to encourage the body of Christ and not, Lord, to cause division. May we take hope in your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, who has overcome for us. We pray it in his name. Amen.